This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, and your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and while you're there, subscribe to our free newsletter. We'll send you our best three stories every week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now it's time for our My Car series where our fellow Americans tell stories about a car that they've once owned. And today's feature is from Barry McGuire, the CEO of his third-generation family company, McGuire's, which is the largest car care products company in the country. And our own Alex Cortez was with Barry in his car collection when he told us about purchasing his favorite car, one that he was trying to buy just because he wanted a car from the same year that his family's company was founded, 1901. So I found this 1901 car at an auction. They have these classic car auctions where they sell nothing but old cars. That's where I'll be next week. I'll be at the same where I bought this. And there's seven other auctions going on at the same time. They're huge, probably $150 million worth of cars that we sold this week in Scottsdale. 164 there now for, sold them 163 and a half. It's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy marketplace. So I saw this in the brochure and I decided I'd like to get it. And I was at another auction and friends that were at the auction where this was, I said, would you buy it for me? But here's my limit, I want to go over this amount. So by the time I get there, they just bought the car and they paid more than I wanted for it. Fortunately, because I wouldn't have bought it. The number one car collector in the world is a guy named Hubert Lauman. Uh, he has the Lauman Museum. It's on the grounds of the Queen in The Hague in Holland. The collection itself and the cars and the building are probably worth a billion dollars. This guy, he knows every, he, he is the expert on collector cars. He can buy anything he wants. And he had picked out this car as one he wanted to buy. And it turned out that when he went in to buy it, it just got off the block. He just missed it. I got it. He would have outbid me. He would have got the car. So he comes out, he says, who bought this car? He said, Barry, he looked at me because he knows I'm in these kind of cars. I'm not in these cars. He said, Barry, you bought this car? Yeah. And he's looking, he says, oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, this is hilarious. He could buy this with pocket change. I mean, this is a nothing car. He's got cars that are worth 20, whatever, million dollars. You know. He said, I have this car, but it's not correct. This one's correct. We've since taken this car completely apart, and they talk about numbers matching. This is the real deal. This is all 1901 stuff. The numbers is in all the parts. Everything in this car is original, which makes it a very special car. He says, I have one, but it's not correct. He says, can I take pictures? I'll make some of these parts. I said, of course you can. So he says, so you know about this car? I said, oh, it's a Duryea. I'm thinking made in France or something. I don't I just wanted to have a 1901 car. He says, you know what, it has three cylinders. Now this guy is taller than me, and he's, he's the most passionate car guy I've ever seen. He's eloquent. He's, 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 he's just, I mean, the guy, his presentation is just, 
I love the way he talks. I, I, I did a TV show with every car in the collection. This car, it just, it just makes my heart patter. This, this, this. He's, he's, every car in the collection, he talks about. He's so personally involved with it. So he's really, so if you get the idea, he's, you know why this car has three cylinders? I, I mean, you don't have three cylinders. You have two, four, six, eight because of vibration and stuff and balance. You don't have a three-cylinder car. He's, you know why this car has three cylinders? And here he said, oh, you know why this guy has three cylinders? I said, no. He looked, he said, what? You don't know why it has three cylinders? I said, no. He said, well, you know they're Christians. Now, he knows I'm a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's a collector with all this knowledge. He said, well, you know they're Christians. I said, who? <laughs> he said, the Derrier brothers. Oh, God. Turns out, the Duryea brothers created the first American car, gas-powered car, in the 1800s, 1886. They created the first production car. They're the first country to ever make a second car like the first car. So they have the record of the first production car. They have the record of winning the first automobile race. I mean, there's all kinds of history. I didn't know what it Anyway, he said, three stars. He says, you know they're Christians. I said, who? He says, the Duryea brothers. The Duryea brothers, he says, yeah. He says, in fact, they call themselves Trinitarians. Are, are you, yeah, he says, and look at this. He says, you know why there's a fish on the side, right? Well, I had looked at that and I thought, that is the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> why would anybody carve a fish into a car? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. That's just bizarre. I'll buy it anyway, I don't worry about it, I just do it, you know. He's, you know why the fish on the side of the car? Well, it was art. Everything was art. So they put the, here's the whole tail of the fish, right? Elegantly done. He's, you know why they put the fish in the side of the car? And I said, I hate very. <laughs> He's, the sign of the fish, the early Christians. Are you kidding me? He says, he comes over to me and he says, do you not know this is the only car ever made to honor God? And I got it. I own it. I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> so I'm always looking ways to talk about God in, in my car guy situation. So every chance I get, they always want to know what kind of cars I have. I got one car, it's really interesting, and I tell them this story. What have I just done? I just told them there is a God who works miracles that's, 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 central to my life, and I didn't offend anybody. You know, you find ways to share your faith where you don't offend anybody. I think there's about 20 of them in existence, and I think there's only two or three that are running, but none of them, but none of them like that. And great job to Monty, who helped us with a piece, and Monty, is a student at Hillsdale College. And what a great find. And thanks also to Barry McGuire and what passion he has for this car, this car that he just had to own because he needed a car from 1901 because that's when his family's company was founded. And it turns out he found the only car ever made to honor and celebrate God. What a good story. Barry McGuire's story, his car story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now a story of a Medal of Honor recipient that you might not expect, a Catholic priest. Father Vincent Capadano was a chaplain with the Marines in the Vietnam War, and our own Alex Cortez brings us his story and to the voices of the men he ministered to. Here's Marine Corporal Henry Hernandez. I was on my second tour of Vietnam. Why I was there, I really didn't know, but I knew that I might not make it back. So I wanted to get close to God. So if the moment came, I would be prepared. So I got up on a, just on a Sunday morning. I knew that I had to go to confession, so I got in line, but I didn't know what was around the corner. There was like a bunker or something. So I couldn't see nothing on the other side of the bunker. When I got closer, Father Capitano is sitting on top of empty ammo boxes and the Marine is kneeling right in front of him. And I didn't know if I could do this. I said, we're gonna make eye contact. I felt embarrassed, ashamed. I had been away from the church for over a year. So I was gonna get out of line, but something kept me there. The next thing I knew, there was only one more Marine in front of me, so I said, well, I'll get ready. So I made a plan. I said, when I walk over to him, I'm gonna look down at his boots, make the sign of the cross, and do not make eye contact with him. So I walk over to him when it was my turn, and I kept looking at his boots, and I made the sign of the cross, and I said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been over a year since my last confession. And then he said, I will help you with your confession. And that's when I looked up. And to this day, I don't know what made me look up. I looked up to him. We made eye contact. He was just seeing right through me. And those piercing eyes that he had, hazel eyes, I mean, I knew he could see right, right through me. After he was over, I felt different. And then he told me, for your penance, I want you to say the rosary. And I said, Father, I do not have a rosary. And he just reached in his pocket. He said, you have one now. He gave me his rosary. And I carry it with me at all times to this day. People want to hold it to see if they can get a miracle. You'll see why in a little bit. Here's Marine Captain George Phillips. The thing that I remember most is his eyes. And other people have said pretty much the same thing. But when you talk to Father Capadano, there could be, you know, a war going on. And you felt like it was just he and you and nobody else mattered. And typically, you had to end the conversation. He wouldn't and he had an innate ability to listen. But he also had an innate ability to know when Marines needed to talk about something. And he would sit and wait in silence until the Marine decided to talk. And he was the type of person that he wouldn't come and ask you questions, how are you doing? Uh, He would make himself present close to you. He had that ability to draw you to him and you would automatically open up to him without even thinking about it. 
Here's Lance Corporal John Lober. Had kind of a, a little bit of a rock star quality. Even though a lot of the guys weren't Catholic, every time he'd walk around to the Mike Company area, people would flock around this man, you know? Here's Captain Tony Grimm. He was like the Pied Piper, just attracting everybody to Mass. Everybody, regardless of their faith, as he performed general absolution, was making the sign of the cross. It was a most remarkable situation. Here's Colonel Gerald Turley. When he would say Mass, it was not uncommon to have the local women, babies strapped on their back. A lot of them were Catholic, most of them were Buddhist. They would come. And after the Mass, people wouldn't leave. You know how we all leave church a little early? They wouldn't leave. As long as Father would stay, they would stay. His love for the Marines was just awesome. And then finally one day he told me, I want to be like them. And I couldn't understand at first what he meant. Well, first of all, chaplains rarely went out into the field. Uh, they always stayed in the rear. That's where the battalion commanders wanted them. That's where the company commanders wanted them because they didn't want to be responsible for them out in combat. Father Capadano had a reputation for doing just that. Here's Lieutenant Fred Smith. Shortly after I first met him, Father Capadano slipped out on a platoon-sized patrol with me, which he was absolutely forbidden to do. He was so courageous and so committed to going out with the troops that the battalion commander, as I recall, had forbidden him to go out with anything other than the battalion headquarters, but it didn't make a bit of difference to Father Capadano. He just, he just would go anyway. Here again is Captain Tony Grimm on a difficult conversation that he had with Father Capadano. He would have an assistant assigned to him, which we commonly called a shotgun because the assistant's job was to ride shotgun or be protection for him. And, and Father Capadano said, no way. He wasn't going to have anybody responsible for his life. He just couldn't accept that somebody might become a casualty because they were protecting him. But he, he liked to be independent and not be under any restrictions. We discussed this over a period of about two days. I said, all right, if you don't have a chaplain's assistant assigned to you, you're going to carry a weapon. You're going to carry a 45. And he got angry, got very angry with me, and he said, do you realize what you're asking me to do? I'm a Catholic priest. I can't carry a weapon. And I said, you've got a choice. It's either the 45 or a chaplain's assistant. Here again is Henry Hernandez, who became Father's Choice out of those two options. We would attend our battalion's briefings, and he would always find out which uh, element was going to go in first. And then he would tell the battalion commander, I want to go on the first wave. The battalion commander would say, no, no, you can't go, Padre. He would leave and then come back later. I guess he made a call to, to division because then the battalion commander would get a call from division saying, if the Padre wants to go on the first wave, let him go. Here's Lieutenant Jerry Pendas. We're trying to cross the stream and the streams were swollen pretty heavy. We were out there for 30 days 
They tried to get across the stream, and the only way they could do it was lock arms and get across the stream. Well, the chain of Marines broke. Two Marines got washed away. They weren't swimmers. They both drowned. They were trying to recover the bodies, and it came over the radio, and I saw the chaplain. I said, uh, Bravo Company just lost a couple of kids trying to cross that creek up there. And he said, where are they? I said, well, they're a couple of clicks away from here, being clicks being kilometers. He didn't even ask the colonel or anything. He just took off by himself. And we were in the jungles, just went off by himself. But anyway, it was just like a, a shot out of a movie. Here comes Capadano leading the company. And they got the two Marines up in the front, and they'd ripped the doors off of some hooches, and they were carrying them on, like, on their shields, two Marines dead. That just one little act, giving them the last rites and bringing them back, and finding it, you know, all by himself, I just thought there must have been a trail that he was following or something. Somebody, he had some type of guidance. The chaplains for 99% of them did not go outside the base camps. When we started hearing about a chaplain that was out with the grunts, going on patrols, getting caught up in firefights, that was a unique experience. Here's Corporal James Hamfeld. Nobody ever turned Father Vincent down. The men wanted him out there. Uh, we were afraid when he was out there, and we really didn't want him there, but he was a relief to see. He actually slipped out of the position we were in and followed by platoon on patrol until it was too late for us to tell him to go back is how he did it with me. I don't know how he did it with, with the other folks, but he would just show up, and he had an aura about him. I think that even the colonel was reluctant to uh, argue with. When Father Capadano finished his first tour of duty, he came home to Staten Island. Briefly, he put in a request for another tour of duty, and no one in the family dared try to stop him. Here's his brother James. Vincent had his own mind, and he was his own man. And, and he, when he made his mind up, he did what he wanted to do. When I say change... His, his whole his whole body and mind was in Vietnam. He couldn't wait to get back. He didn't tell us, but you could see that. We understood that. On June 6, 1967, Father's request for another tour was granted. And just three days later, his family dropped him off at the airport. That's the last time everybody saw him here at the, at the airport. Here's Father Daniel Mode, author of Capadano's biography, The Grunt Padre, on Padre's last day. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole nother world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4th, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, 
taking off one after another from the LZ, the landing zone. We were gathering in the LZ, waiting for the choppers to come. First platoon was going first, then second, then third. Father Capadano was down there talking to the Marines. He used to tell everybody, God is with us this day. Everything will be okay. But it was always, God is with us this day. And he said that to a group of us that were standing around. Uh, he used to carry St. Christopher medals. The patron saint of travelers, like themselves. He used to hand them out to people who didn't have them. I remember at one point, I was told, I mean, I saw it from a distance. One Marine asked for a St. Christopher medal, and apparently he was out of them. So he took his own St. Christopher medal off and gave it to the Marine. Uh, Father Capadano always had plenty of cigarettes. I think he had a, like a factory in his tent or something. So he was handing cigarettes out to folks and trying to put them at ease because everyone knew this was not going to be a good day. Here's First Lieutenant J.D. Murray. And as he has done previously, he waits till the last helicopter because uh, he didn't want anybody to know he was going out there. And he comes aboard. After all, the first platoon went, second platoon went, third platoon went, and he got on the last helicopter in the third platoon because there was nobody left in the LZ to stop him. James Hillgartner was asked as a commanding officer, would he have approved father being in a firefight like that? No. If he was coming with me, I'd have put a rope around his neck and tied him to my belt. I knew he was the kind of guy who wasn't going to stay in one place. He was a grunt padre. He was going to be with the men and no matter what. So, no, he would have either been left behind or he would have been chained to me. Uh, you might say he answered to a higher calling. Nobody's going to stop a Catholic priest from getting on a chopper. Nobody. I certainly wouldn't, and I'm sure the pilot didn't either. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post. We're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, 
and brought him back to relative safety. He literally saved my life on September 4th, 1967 by helping me up the knoll to a safe position in a bomb crater. Had he not been there, I would not be here today. My children would not be here. My grandchildren would not be here. Time and time again throughout that late morning and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. And I'm screaming, get down, Father, get down. You have to get down. There's so many bullets in the air, you could trim your fingernails by sticking your hands up. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deployed tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot, give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. And you've been listening to the story of Medal of Honor recipient Father Vincent Capadano. First, second, and third platoons went out, and he got on that last helicopter because, well, there was no one left to stop him. He was a grunt padre, as one of the men revealed, and he was going to be with the men no matter what. Wounded once, shot in the hand, twice, a mortar round in the shoulder. When we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story. Again, of Father Vincent Capadano, as told by so many of the men he served and loved. This is Our American Story. continue with our American stories and with the story of Father Capadano, a one-of-a-kind chaplain who ministered to Marines in the heart and heat of the battlefield. 
Let's return to his heroic actions on September 4, 1967, when he was with his Marines during the Vietnam War's Operation Swift. So later in the day, you lose track of time when people are shooting at you all the time. So uh, three or four hours, to my memory, others will say two hours, he saw some wounded Marines that were down towards the bottom of the hill. Uh, there was a wounded corpsman too. And he was running from person to person, providing what comfort and the sacraments as necessary to these Marines. A machine gunner had set up a nest very well camouflaged. And he had a firing channel that happened to separate some wounded Marines over here and some wounded Marines over here. The corpsman over here who he tried to get to help never got there but he was helping people on one side and he was getting ready to go on the other side and they were screaming at him, don't cross over, the machine gunner's there, don't cross over, because three or four Marines already been wounded trying to cross over that firing channel. Uh, he didn't listen to anybody. He took off across the clearing, trying to get to three other Marines. The machine gun opened up and uh, shot him 26 times in the back. But he never had any fear for himself. Uh, just a, a miraculous, amazing priest. Here's Lance Corporal Fred Tankey, who watched Father Capadano's death right before his eyes. We had 18 killed, including Father Capadano, and 80 plus wounded. And there are times, you gotta wonder, Did the winners die? We have an awful lot of people from Vietnam with a lot of problems. And, and some people will say, well, God has a mission for you. God has a job for you. God wants you around. Well, to me, those guys that died that day were every bit as good as I ever was, and if not better. Fred continues on returning stateside. It's, it's called an adjustment period, and it's very difficult for some. My way of adjusting was to ignore 40 years. 40 years. I barely ever thought of anything about Vietnam, especially that day. There were a couple things, obviously, that impacted me the worst, but uh, I always tried to keep track of what happened with Father Capadano since I was the original person who wrote him up for the Medal of Honor. So I was very happy and grateful that he, that he won. He deserved it. He deserved everything he got because who does that? You're fortunate that I can do this like this today. There are times that I give up the speech, I couldn't talk, you know. But I think, I know people get tired of hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it, but it's very therapeutic. It's very therapeutic. And the more you talk about it, the more you can feel comfortable about talking about it, which then helps not only you, but maybe others. In many ways, obviously, that is the last heroic act of Father Capadano. 
but in all ways, it is how God uses a person like Father Capadano, not just in his heroic act, but throughout his life and even into his death. I tell this story. After his death on September 4, 1967, it affected greatly, especially the area of New York where he grew up. And one man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano. And then he said these words, I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And Father Capadano hasn't stopped working. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on, his, on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith. You may know him as the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at, at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. Well, he wanted to talk to me about Father Capadano, and I met with him. His story is in the book, The Grunt Padre. Well, when I was meeting with him, I was the vice principal of this Catholic high school, and I was building a memorial there. And the center of the memorial was a statue of the Holy Family that we were having carved in Carrara, Italy. But the shippers couldn't guarantee that it would be there by the end of the school year for our dedication. I had an issue, obviously. A big statue, about a ton. Now I'm going to meet with Fred Smith. After he tells me this amazing story of his encounters with Father Capadano on that day of September 4th, literally he's crying, telling me this story. He says, Father, is there anything I can do for you? Bing, light goes off. I said, Fred, I've got a ton of a problem. I've got this statue in Carrara, Italy. I need to get it here to the United States. 48 hours later, it was FedExed. True story. A missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? Obviously, some of the more incredible touch of Father Capadano in people's lives have been the miracles dedicated to his name. All of those are being investigated as we continue the cause. The cause for him to be declared a saint. Father Capadano, uh, you can't forget a man like that. It, it's just impossible because nobody has... Nobody is ever going to have an effect on you the way he did. And the Marines and sailors that worked with him will tell you that to a man. Padre, thank you very much for saving my life. But most important, thank you for saving my soul and bringing me back to the Catholic Church. I mean, I, 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 not a day goes by that I don't say thank you, God, but thank you. Chaplain Capitano for saving my soul. And, uh, you know, I just hope that I live to see him become a saint. I think that would be 
the happiest day of my life. Here's Lieutenant Ed Blacksmith. I have the, I made it the, the kind of the vow to myself that the, the people who didn't come home, including Father Capodanno, it was my, my responsibility to live my life to the best I could live it, to honor them, live a life that they were unable to live. And when, when my son was killed in Iraq, and then three years later, his mother died of cancer. And friends of mine would say, how do you deal with this? And I said, I have three things. I have a very strong faith. I have a lot of good friends in my Marine Corps training. Well, what's the Marine Corps? I said, well, the Marine Corps teaches you to complete the mission. Life is a one-way ticket. It's not a round trip. We do it one time. And uh, I don't think Pam or JP would want me to not live my life to the fullest degree. And I honor the people who didn't come home by doing that. And a special thanks to Alex and Joey. Great work as always on the piece. And we'd like to thank a few folks who helped make this story possible. EWTN for allowing us to use the material from their film about Father Capadano that's titled Called and Chosen. You can purchase this powerful film at EWTNRC.com. We'd also like to thank Focus TV for also allowing us to use material from their film, The Grunt Padre in Vietnam, which you can buy at FocusTVOnline.com. Finally, we'd like to thank the Father Capadano Guild, the nonprofit that's promoting the cause for sainthood, the Father Vincent R. Capadano. You can learn about and support their work at CapadanoGuild.org. Running from person to person, providing comfort and sacraments is all I could think about in that story. Amongst all that fire, all that danger, that's what he was doing, serving to the end. He never had any fear for himself, one of his men said. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? That question resounded again and again. Thank you for saving my life, one of his men said. More important, thank you for saving my soul. I hope that I live to see him become a saint. That would be the happiest day of my life. The story of Father Vincent Capadano. We'd love to hear your stories about heroism and courage under fire. Any kind, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. We will promise we'll honor them. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us 
at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of the best we do here on this show. Today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up in Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today, he brings us a story you're going to have to hear to believe. It's all about love, old-fashioned values, and, well, breaking the law. Here's Tom. I slipped the ring on her finger, said I do, and thought it was forever. Boy, was I wrong. So I've joined the shuffling line of millions of lonely people wondering where it all went wrong. What do you do with 15 years of memories? It is reassuring, however, to know that there are couples who make it through 40 or 50 years of marriage. Of course, they are usually as astonished as anyone else that they made it. That look of surprise in their newspaper anniversary pictures isn't an accident. I even know of a couple who made it that long without being married. It started in those lean depression days of the late 30s in my small New England hometown where any woman who dyed her hair or plucked her eyebrows was snickered at and divorce was something for movie stars. Dr. Joe was the town doctor, a quiet, mumbling man who made house calls at any hour of the day or night. He brought our family through all sorts of medical crises. He was devoted Catholic and he had a wife and two kids. He was so lost in his work, however, that his wife finally skipped off with a touring actor and even took the kids with her. Dr. Joe only worked harder after that. When I passed the bar exam in the 50s, he toyed with the idea of turning over years of unpaid bills to me for collection. But he never had the heart to do it. He was too nice. Dr. Joe met Clara Jensen at church social functions. Clara's husband had died in a plane crash a few years earlier. They became bridge partners and shared a basket at church outings, and they fell totally in love. According to my mother, who with her brother Jim ran a family funeral home a block away from the church and was a close friend of both, said they made great efforts to get a church annulment of his first marriage so that they could marry. But in those days, the church was very rigid. Years drifted by, but they never gave up hope. I lost track of them after having moved to the West Coast, but my 90-year-old mother sometimes mentioned them in our weekly phone conversations. During my last trip home, 
chatting over our usual cup of tea at her old kitchen table. I asked Mom about Dr. Joe and Clara. She didn't answer. Instead, she rose and hovered over the tea kettle on the stove, pretending to be busy. She said, talking to the tea kettle, I've done something very wrong. Judge O'Sullivan just called to tell me about it. She hesitated and then turning to me with eyes blazing and a smile of satisfaction set deep in her cheeks, and I am so happy that I did it. What? I said, not quite sure of what I had heard. What's the joke, Helen Murphy? No joke, she started to sniffle. I stood up and embraced the lumpy little figure I had loved all my life, kissing her incredibly soft, freckled cheek. Hey, you've got a lawyer son, don't worry. I can spring any woman who still doesn't eat meat on Friday and hasn't missed daily mass in years, unless you've committed mass murder. She shook her head as she dabbed at her eyes and nose with a tissue, waving away my attempt at humor. Have some more tea, she said, as she refilled our cups. I waited until she was ready to talk, and then it came spilling out. You asked about Dr. Joe and Clara. Oh, dear. I thought I had told you on the phone. Told me what? Dr. Joe died a few months ago. I think you were in Europe. He was raking leaves in his garden. The newspaper delivery boy found him. Oh, no. Was Clara with him? No, she was at her own place. She still had her own place? Didn't they live together? No, of course not, Mike. My God, they went together for 30 or 40 years. Didn't they sleep? She shook her head. They were very close, but they were also good Catholics. And when we come back, this unique voice and a listener to Our American Stories, a listener in Los Angeles on our affiliate there, KABC. And we're listening to Tom Ryan talking about the story of Dr. Joe and Clara Benson. Tom had moved out to the West Coast. His mom was still back on the East Coast out on Long Island and catching up on the news of this couple that he looked up to and admired. Another great listener story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories, and this one is from a listener, Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. And Tom grew up 
at a funeral parlor run by his family in Long Island, moved to L.A., but there was this one couple he always thought about and admired, and that's Joe and Clara. He was having a conversation with his mom when we last left off, and let's pick it up right here. People had standards in those days, not like today. All those years, unbelievable, I muttered. They always thought they would marry, but the diocese was so strict, so strict. She shook her head. How's she taking it? I asked. Tears started to flow again as she said with a sob, that's the other sad news. Clara passed away just last week. Remember I told you last year that she was fighting cancer. Dr. Joe was doing all he could for her, but then he went. I stared at the bottom of my teacup. That's so sad, both of them. So you had them waked out in front within a few months of each other? She nodded. A voice dropped off as she said, that's what I have to tell you. I broke the law. I did something I shouldn't have. But I feel so glad I did. Seeing the confused look on my face, she continued, Dr. Joe donated his vital organs to science. His two children finally turned up and requested that his remains be cremated. Their mother had recently died, they said. As usual, the crematorium returned Dr. Joe's ashes to us, and I stored them out in the hall closet. I nodded as I recalled the hall closet from childhood. Stacks of canister of ashes had lined the shelves of the closet for years. Many were never claimed by the families who either moved away or didn't want to come in and pay the funeral bill. Many of the paper name tags had fallen off. Sometimes before air conditioning, those with no name tags were used to prop open the front doors on hot summer nights at crowded wakes. I always smiled when I realized that unbeknownst to anyone else, the unclaimed ashes of a big muck-a-duck politician, as my mom called him, were used on many a hot night to humbly hold the door open for the constituents he had fleeced for so many years. Do Dr. Joe's kids want the ashes, I asked. Yes, Mom replied, they are fighting over the estate. It's sizable. Both children have lawyers. The daughter was adopted, and the son is claiming that she isn't entitled to anything. It's gotten pretty petty. Now both lawyers are claiming the ashes right away. So that's what Judge O'Sullivan was talking to you about? Yes, he sent me a copy of a court order. She pulled a blue-backed legal document from her nearby knitting basket and handed it to me. I guess it says I'm to give the ashes over to the court. As I read the order, I nodded in agreement. Yep, that's it. So what's so hot about that? She didn't answer directly. Instead, she put down her teacup, 
looked out the kitchen bay window dreamily and said, Clara looked so beautiful in the casket in her peach dress, her hair done the way she liked it, her good pearls. She started to sniffle while speaking. Well, they waited for each other a very long time in full grace, so I'm sure they're together in heaven, I volunteered. She blushed and with a tight smile played around the corners of her mouth. I helped things a little, she murmured. Help things, I asked. An unsettling chill slid down my spine. She looked straight at me and said, when all the mourners had gone, the men were loading them into the limits to go to church. I went back to say a last goodbye to Clara before they came back to close the casket. I was all alone with her having a good cry when suddenly I remembered Dr. Joe's ashes in the closet. So, so, so she spoke rapidly. I pried off the top of the canister with those pliers we keep in that closet and poured all of Dr. Joe's ashes onto Clara's lap and into the satin lining of the casket. A voice rose with pride as she finished. A warm glow surged through me. You mean, a smile cut me off, Mike, Clara, and Dr. Joe are finally joined together in eternity, and I'm so happy for them that I just want to burst with joy when I think of it. I know that legally I had no right to disturb those ashes. Tears of happiness rolled down her freckled face. And now I'm in trouble. The court wants the ashes. What should I do? I kneeled next to her chair and hugged her and comforted her. She didn't see the tears of pride in the corners of my eyes. My mind raced as I searched for an answer. Mom, I talked quietly over her shoulder while still holding her. The law is very hard in ways, but it tries to be responsive to our human needs and desires. We know, and I'm sure Judge O'Sullivan would agree, if he knew that you were right, that Dr. Joe would have wanted to be with Clara. You did something beautiful. She broke away for a moment to dab her nose and eyes with the tissue. I stayed close to her and started to speak, but she blurted, He knows, and started to cry again. What? He knows, she repeated. Judge O'Sullivan knows what you did? She nodded. He's an old friend. We buried his mother and father. He knew Dr. Joe and Clara. They were close. I couldn't lie to him. I plopped down in the kitchen chair. Wow, was all I could manage. He said to talk to you, she continued. He knows you're a lawyer. What else did he say? Not much. He was silent when I told him. I think he almost cried. His voice broke, sort of. He said to talk to you, and oh yes, to tell you to get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it to his court clerk. That's exactly what he said. Get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it. 
Yes. She just nodded and sniffled. I sipped my tea and smiled. The kitchen was quiet except for the ticking of the grandfather clock in the hallway. I headed for the hall closet. And what a story, and thanks to Tom Ryan. And again, he's a 95-year-old listener on KABC in Los Angeles, and thank you, Tom. And there are more to come from him, actually, because, well, that's not an accident, what you just heard, folks. What a voice. What a story. And my goodness, there was a time, I mean, imagine that. The Catholic Church wouldn't annul that wedding. And so these two just could never live together. They just couldn't live together. They always thought they'd marry, but things were so strict. So, so strict. The mom said that. Clara passed away, and soon thereafter, Joe did. And that happened so often, folks, in life. We've seen it happen time and again in stories we tell. June Cash died, and Johnny Cash died not soon thereafter. And George Bush and Barbara Bush, look at how quickly that happened. And so it is when you lose that loved one for all those years. Well, the party just wants to join him. And my goodness, the way Tom's mom handled things. I broke the law. And I'm so glad I did. And sometimes, you know, folks, the rules don't make any sense. And that's a hard thing to teach your kids because you got to teach them to follow the rules, except when they shouldn't, right? Except when they shouldn't. And we want to hear your stories, any kind, love stories, inspirational stories, any kind at all, courage, faith, Hope, love, these are the things we write about a lot and talk about here on this show. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Tom Ryan's story and his mom's story about Joe and Clara. All of their stories together here on Our American Stories. American stories and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the history guy his videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube the history guy is also heard here on our American stories here he is telling the story of the tank duel during the Battle of the Bulge at Sanvie Belgium Today we're going to talk about an event that was described in an after-action battle report on December 18, 1944, where a U.S. light-armored car engaged and destroyed a German heavy tank in combat, which is something so unlikely that you might not even think it was true except that there were multiple witnesses and an official army report. And while it really is an interesting and exciting story worth telling, it is also an interesting microcosm of the world-shattering events that were going on in the winter of 1944 and an interesting life lesson as well. But before we talk about this duel between armored vehicles, let's talk about the events that led up to it. The Germans launched one of their last major offensives of the Second World War on December 16, 1944. They were attacking a heavily forested section of Belgium called the Ardennes, 
It was lightly defended by the Allies because they believed that the terrain was so impassable that there couldn't be an offensive there. The goal was to drive all the way through to the Belgian port of Antwerp. That would split the Western Allies in half, isolate entire army groups, and, Hitler hoped, inflict such a defeat on the Western Allies that they would have to sue for peace, allowing him to concentrate on the war with the Soviet Union. It was a massive attack that included 206,000 troops, 1,200 tanks, and 4,000 artillery pieces. The goal was to use surprise and speed to move so quickly that the Allies would not be able to mount a defense or a counterattack. That required a very aggressive timetable where the German army needed to take certain towns that had crossroads necessary for moving those numbers of troops. One of those was the town of Bastogne, and the defense of Bastogne by the 101st Airborne is pretty well known, but another one that's not discussed nearly as much is the defense of the tiny belted town of Sanvie. December 17th saw chaos in the tiny town of Sanvie. The German assault the night before had caught the Americans completely off guard. Thousands of American troops were in headlong retreat. Two entire regiments had been surrounded and forced to surrender. But the Americans knew the importance of the crossroads in Sanvie, and so they were desperately trying to throw up a defense, creating ad hoc units from the retreating troops and trying to bring up reinforcements from the 7th and 9th armored divisions through the traffic jam of retreating troops and destroyed vehicles. But on the other side, things were almost as bad. The Americans had held in the north, cutting off one of the major roads that the Germans had intended to use, and that meant that the entire 5th Panzer Army was stuck on one road. And on that road, the traffic jam was so bad that one of the German commanders, Field Marshal Modell, was standing in the road trying to direct traffic. And that's how things stood as the day ended on December 17th. The Americans were in a traffic jam, desperately trying to create a defense of the Saint-Vie crossroads. And the Germans were in a traffic jam, desperately trying to take Saint-Vie before the Americans could mount that defense. And that brings us to December 18th, the date of our duel between a U.S. M8 armored car and a much-feared Tiger tank in the high-stakes defense of the town of Saint-Vie. So let's talk about those two vehicles that met that day. The M8 armored car is a reconnaissance vehicle, in this case with Troop B of the 87th Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron. The job of a reconnaissance squadron is to make and keep contact with the enemy so that you know the enemy's strength and intention. Their vehicles were built around speed and agility, not armor and armament. The M8, made by Ford, was lightly armed with a 37mm cannon. That's not enough to say hurt the front armor on a large tank, but it could take on an enemy reconnaissance vehicle or a soft vehicle like a truck or an artillery piece. The M8 was armored, but only enough to protect it from, say, machine gun fire, not a cannon like on a tank. Although the M8's off-road capability was disappointing, the M8 was very fast on roads and capable of maintaining speeds up to 55 miles per hour. On the other side of the battlefield, the Germans brought with them some of the most powerful armored fighting vehicles of the Second World War. Not only did they have the formidable Panzer IV and Panther medium tanks, but they brought along the masters of the battlefield, the mighty Tiger Tank. Made by the Hengel Corporation, a Tiger weighed in at more than 60 tons, it's more than eight times the weight of an M8. Its frontal armor was 120 millimeters thick, which was virtually invulnerable to the 37 millimeter cannon on an M8. And its own cannon was the mighty 88, an 8.8 centimeter gun meant to destroy the best armor that the Allies could bring to the battlefield. 
against an 88, an M8 might as well have been armored with paper. The only weakness for a Tiger was the armor in the rear, because tanks are built to be attacked from the front, but even there, a Tiger had 80 millimeters of armor, which meant that for an M8 to hurt a Tiger, would essentially have to shoot into the back of the tank at point-blank range. But of course, that's exactly what happened on December 18th, witnessed by an infantry captain and recorded in an after-action report. According to the report, the M8 was concealed in a bush and was surprised when a Tiger tank rumbled by right in front of it. The commander realized that the crew of the Tiger tank had not seen his M8, and the Tiger was driving on a sunken road so that it wouldn't be able to maneuver. The commander realized an opportunity, so he rolled out his M8 to charge the rear of the Tiger tank, hoping to get his shot in before even being seen. Well, it didn't work out as easily as he had hoped. The commander of the Tiger tank spotted them as they approached, and so it became a desperate race, with the M8 racing to get close enough to use its tiny 37mm cannon, and the commander of the Tiger tank desperately trying to traverse its massive turret so it could shoot at the M8. At just 25 yards, a mere 75 feet, the M8 fired three shots straight into the rear of the Tiger tank. The huge beast shuddered, rumbled to a stop, and exploded into flames, the crew abandoning the tank. And then, in my favorite bit of the after-action report, the witness mildly noted that, having just scored perhaps the most extraordinary kill in the entire history of armored warfare, the M8 returned to its position. Sure, it's an exciting story, but what does it really teach us? Well, I think one of the most interesting parts of the story is that this attack was not an act of desperation, it was an act of calculation. The sergeant commanding the M8 knew the strengths of his own vehicle, knew the weakness of his enemy, saw an opportunity, and took it. And isn't that a great life lesson? If you understand your strengths and recognize your opportunities, you can defeat even overwhelming odds. But it's also a great illustration of the plucky American defense of the town of Saint-V. Like the M8, the Americans in Saint-V were facing overwhelming odds in a chaotic situation, and yet they put up a defense greater than anyone might have imagined. The Germans expected that their overwhelming numbers would easily take saint on December 18th, and yet the outnumbered Americans held out for an entire week. It wasn't until December 24th that they finally withdrew to new positions. By the time the Germans finally took the town, it was really just too late. While their offensive, better known as the Battle of the Bulge, would rage on for another month, in practice the Germans had no chance of achieving their goals after they lost the initiative in the first few days against determined defenses at places like Sanvi. In the end, the Germans lost more than 100,000 casualties in the battle, killed or captured, and virtually all the equipment they took was lost as well. The surprise offensive turned out to be an astounding victory for the Allies, maybe best illustrated by that time when the little M8 armored car defeated the Goliath of the battlefield on a lonely road in Belgium. And great job as always to Greg Hengler, and special thanks to the history guy if you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy, colon, History Deserves to be Remembered. And what terrific storytelling. And it's so true. This was not an act of desperation, but calculation. And always American ingenuity and courage. I mean, it took guts to just leave a post. I mean, clearly they hadn't been seen. But to go track down a tiger tank and try and take it down... Not only the most extraordinary kill in the history of armored warfare, but a sheer and pure example of how Americans seize initiative and take risks. This is Lee Habib, 
Another great story from the History Guy, here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and today we bring you the story of Henny Jewelers, a fourth generation family owned jewelry shop with a heck of a story in Pittsburgh, PA. The story of Henny Jewelers began in 1887 by my great grandfather, Rudolph Joseph Henny who was a watchmaker by trade, and he decided to start his own business. So he bought a building in the east end of Pittsburgh with a $5 down payment, and he and his wife moved upstairs and then operated the business down below, and there they serviced railroad pocket watches for the railroad right around the corner and began to sell jewelry, um, engagement rings, wedding bands, and did just about any type of service that could be done. He continued to operate that business into the early 1900s. His son, his only child, was born above the store in 1899. Rudolph Gerard Henny, or Jerry, was the next generation to come into the family business. And he carried that business through the Great Depression, which we actually have the original accounting ledger from the 1920s and 1930s. The Great Depression saw Henny Jewelers' sales drop 72% from 1926 to 1934. Despite the toll that the Great Depression took on the Hennies, they still managed to make it through with a little thriftiness and ingenuity. They were true entrepreneurs because back then, while sales were declining, they actually tripled their marketing budget. I think also being able to have the store fully paid for so they really didn't have rent. And at that time, uh, they still may have been living above the store. At least one of the generations was. Uh, so they were able to get through the Great Depression and, and carry on the business. Eventually, the business was passed on to my father. So during the 1960s, the area where the store was located in the east end of Pittsburgh, they did some urban development that changed things, which significantly uh, declined the commercial viability of the area. And we saw crime go up. And my dad, finally in the 1970s, 1978, decided to move the store. It was a very difficult move because they had been in the previous location for 91 years. It was the store where my grandfather, his father, was actually born, and it was a real change, uh, a real risk for him, but it turned out to be uh, a great move, and he continued to operate that uh, to the 1990s. 
I came in the business in 1992. My dad was very sincere when he mentioned to me about the opportunity to come into the business. There was no pressure that he really felt it was a business that he enjoyed, but every one of us should choose something that we really enjoy and love. I had my own desire to come into the business. I saw my dad, uh, I saw what he got to do. I started working in the business when I was 12, and I would come in and run the vacuum and clean toilets and wrap packages. We used to actually make our own bows in the basement. There was a little machine that you would twist these bows up, and I, I would sit there for hours and make bows. And, you know, frankly, uh, my dad is one of my heroes, and if I could be like him, that would be a, a very successful life. Uh, so I had a desire to come in and do what he did. When I joined the business, we were doing less than 2% bridal engagement rings and wedding bands, and now it accounts for about 35% of our business. And frankly, it's some of the most exciting things that we get to do. It's really fun for me to get to meet these young couples who are planning the next stage of life, planning to get engaged and then get married. And some of them I've gotten to see through it. Now in my 26 years in the business, I now get to see uh, the children who are graduated from high school and college when I sold the original engagement ring and wedding band years ago. My Christian faith is uh, very important to me. This goes all the way back to my great-grandfather. In fact, right now on the credenza behind me is a little trowel that was given to my great-grandfather in recognition of his help to lay the cornerstone in the new church that was built down the street, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, which coincidentally is uh, where my sister was married and where my grandparents, they were the very first couple married in that church. And faith has played an important part in how we operate the business and what we do here. It was discouraging to see young couples getting engaged and getting married and, and seeing the love that they have for each other and then encountering them five or seven or ten years later when they're coming back to sell the engagement ring and wedding bands because things didn't work out uh, so well. Marriage and relationships can be challenging and sometimes people don't prepare uh, as well as they might need to. As my dad said often, uh, he and my mother counsel young couples through their church as they prepare for marriage, and he was getting the impression that many of the young couples today were more interested in preparing for the wedding ceremony than for the relationship. And so we developed a program, we called it the To Have and To Hold program, where we give a financial incentive to couples to seek pre-marriage counseling through their synagogue, their church, through any type of uh, counselor, and we will give them a discount on their wedding bands if they show us that they have received pre-marriage counseling. In addition to that, we do give out a book to every couple who comes in to look at an engagement ring. It is uh, written by Gary Chapman, who is pretty famous for a book he wrote called The Five Love Languages, and this book is The Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married, and it's a great practical guide to help prepare young couples for getting married. And we have given it to thousands of couples now, and some of them have come back and told us what an impact it's had and how helpful it was. I know that many have taken it and read it and given it to their friends to read as they prepare for marriage. I generally tell people that I have never had a, an innovative thought, that I'm really good at paying attention to what other people do 
in picking out what uh, has been successful in trying to emulate it, uh, maybe tweak it. Uh, but that was one that we did come up with on our own through a leaders collaborative that I went through about 11 years ago. And at the end of this leaders collaborative, they asked everyone to come up with a breakthrough goal where they in their position, wherever they are, could have an impact on the world. And I thought to myself, what in the world is a, a little dinky retail jeweler going to do to have an impact on the world? How can I really impact our community? How can a jewelry store really do something that would have a meaningful impact? At that exact time, a very close friend of mine from college um, was going through a real challenge in his marriage. And that's what gave me the inspiration to see if there was a way that we could use our unique position uh, in dealing with couples as they're preparing for marriage to help them better prepare for marriage. Because it is neat, when you are selling an engagement ring, you tend to hear their story. You get connected to these couples and you get to know them in a way that most people in a retail environment don't get to know people. And it, we felt that through that, we might be able to speak into their lives and give them some resources that could be beneficial and helpful. Uh, and so that's our desire, our hope is that there are marriages that are slightly better than they would have been if they hadn't read the book or done the pre-marriage counseling and maybe we're really even making an impact that there are marriages that are saved that wouldn't have been because of the resources that we've given them. I have four boys, the oldest is 16 down to 10 and they have all worked in the business in minor ways and uh, one of them has come in and actually uh, gets behind the sales counter and is really quite good at it. We will see if any of them do choose to come in the business. Just like my father said to me, I intend to say to them that it is an opportunity, a means to make a living and provide for your family if you're interested. It's frankly one that I enjoy tremendously, uh, but there's no obligation to come into this business. There's no tradition that needs to be carried on and they should pursue their dreams and do whatever uh, they feel called to and to do something that they really enjoy. That's certainly one of the Things that I, I feel strongly about, and I talk to our team, we have a, a staff of about 30 here, that we spend too much time at work. In fact, we oftentimes spend more time at work than we do with our families. So we should find something that we really enjoy. And I like to say, you should enjoy what you do, you should uh, like what you do, 60 to 80% of the time. I'm well aware that there are bad days and not all things go smoothly and easily. There are times that you're not gonna love what happened that day, but for the most part, you should be excited to go to work and enjoy what you're doing. And thanks to Robbie for his work on that piece. And by the way, Robbie and his fiance, well, they're about to get married and they went to Henny's to buy their wedding bands and John looked after them. He sat down with them, he walked them through their options. He even had her ring cleaned and resized. He didn't have to do that. It's just what he does. And by the way, if you have a story about a local-owned business, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org because these business owners, they're the lifeblood of a town. I mean, imagine he said he had 30 on staff, and 30 on staff means he's probably taking care of 100-plus people if you count their family, spouses, kids, etc. And this is what small business owners do. They're the lifeblood of a town, and it's very much what Tocqueville observed about this country, the French social scientist who came here in the 19th century. And what he observed was, well, something unique to America. All these associations, all these churches, all these small businesses, Americans just gathered together and solving problems and taking care of business. 
Indeed, he believed that the lifeblood of a democracy, the lifeblood of a democracy, were these small associations. And so thanks to John Henney for doing all the things he does, a family serving Pittsburgh for many, many, many decades. John Henney's story, his family's story, a Pittsburgh story here on Our American Stories.